Get an insight and understanding into the way the healthcare system works so you can receive safe and appropriate medical treatment. Welcome to the Vital Vader Podcast. Today we have a very special episode and I know I say that a lot but today's episode is very special because the man we interviewed, Dr. Marty McCary, is one of the most influential men and the most influential individual I have interviewed on my podcast show particularly influential in the field of medicine. You know, we'll go into Marty's magnificent profile soon, but he's, you know, very high up in public health at the prestigious John Hopkins University, as well as, you know, the world. Dr. Marty McCary advises the Trump administration. He's been on CNN, Fox News. He's been all over the media right now, you know, giving his view on COVID. And when I say right now, I'm, I'm referring to March, April 2020, um, we recorded this podcast May 27, 2020, so do keep that in note. But even within those two months when Marty was all over the mainstream news, two, two months later, um, we recorded this. He, his view of, as well changed you know, in, in March as he, as he talks about with the COVID. He was saying, you know, we need to close businesses. He was a proponent for that. Um, but now he's saying we really re- need to reopen it. However, this episode is not at all primarily on COVID. We do touch on it because how can we not? He's an, He's, you know, an expert in public health. But this is on a very strong issue, pervading issue in today's society, which people are not aware about. And that is just to understand the systems of healthcare. Marty wrote a fantastic book, one of my favorite books called The Price We Pay. What broke healthcare and how to fix it? What broke American healthcare and how to fix it? This does not only apply to America, it applies to everywhere. And Marty, what I really value about Marty is he traveled all around the US talking to people, hearing stories from individuals, from people with insurance companies, from ambulance, you know, people, from doctors, from patients, all the multiple disciplines. He he was going to insurance company conferences to get an insight because insurance companies play a huge role in this in the healthcare and how how it works. So this is not a this is not a podcast about big pharma. This is about the price we pay. This is about the the crazy uh, interactions that are happening in in healthcare. Now, why are we educating you on this? So you can gain healthcare literacy. Healthcare literacy is important to understand so you can navigate in today's society and ultimately as a consumer, and this is what Marty's uh, intention is of sharing this, is so you as a consumer or you as a patient can gain the knowledge and buy with your dollar and promote medicine's noble heritage of caring for people when they are vulnerable because that noble heritage of medicine has been lost and due to the systems that are at play. So this is why we share this podcast a big focus is on medical appropriateness and is that medical procedure, is that medical intervention, is that medicine that you've been prescribed really the most appropriate thing? Maybe not. Maybe the doctor's prescribing it to you because they, you know, have some other incentive. Maybe they don't know better. Maybe they've been taught the way in schools to do this. Maybe the whole system is is messed up so that, you know, people, a very small percentage of, of people are running certain things and so this is all what we talk about. It's very important to navigate in today's society so so you can make the right choices primarily for your health and well-being and as well for your wallet, which we talk about. So 
Marty's book, The Price We Pay, is one of my favorite books. I read it in two days. It was an absolute page turner. I'm going to tell you more about Dr. Marty McCary. He's a New York Times bestselling author, John Hopkins surgeon and professor of health policy. His book, The Price We Pay, has been described by Steve Forbes as a must-read for every American. And I'll add for every Australian, for every European, because so many of these systems are related and based on the American healthcare system. Dr. Marty McCary is a frequent medical guest on NBC and Fox News and a leading voice for physicians writing for the Wall Street Journal and USA Today. He's a gastrointestinal surgeon. He's an advocate for the redesign of medical healthcare and studies innovations that improve health, reduce waste, and address the root cause of illness. He currently serves as an executive director of Improving Wisely, a nationwide physician collaboration to reduce unnecessary medical health care and is the founder of Restoring Medicine, an advocacy effort to help people who can't afford their medical bills. Dr. Marty McCary has been named one of America's top 20 most influential people in healthcare by Health Leaders Magazine, and I would definitely agree with that. So you're going to enjoy this episode. A few of the things we talk about is the crisis of medical appropriateness, the opioid crisis, um, revolutionizing medicine through the medical education system, medical error, healthy skepticism versus trusting a physician, the true heritage and purpose of hospitals and doctors, price gouging, something that really needs to be called out and that Marty has been doing fantastic work on, price fluidity, ne- negotiating with hospitals, with hospital bills, hospitals suing patients, doctors nudging their patients, patients through certain words to make them choose a a certain procedure you know these are many things that we talk about and as well marty offers solutions for this how to change this system and you know this is why he's such an influential because just from his work he's been doing you know with restoring medicine and check out all the amazing resources we provide to help you navigate healthcare and and understand it um you know initiated by marty that really is a, is wonderful for the future because it's 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 changing the whole game it's changing the the economy it's changing the market the market of medicine and and Marty is so fantastic in the work he's doing so i hope you enjoy this episode i'm sure you will if you like this stuff if you support it you know if you enjoy what you're hearing if you're learning from it please support the show share it share it with a friend share it on your instagram story whatever you do tag me and i don't know if my i don't think marty has instagram but he has facebook marty mccary or dr marty mccary um, just share with a friend who's who's getting into procedures, who's been advised a medical procedure, who's been, you know, has taken too many medications or, or so many medications that seems not right. So just they can navigate. And this is a huge thing. So over-treatment, pill-popping culture, materialism, all these things is what we talk about. So enjoy the show. To stay update with, you know, the Vital Veda, my company, which, by the way, Vital Veda is... This podcast, we explore the laws of nature, the unity governing the laws of nature. You know, this includes Ayurveda, the science of life, that ancient medical tradition, as well as any laws of nature related to consciousness, related to spirituality, related to health, related to relationships. And I interview experts in this field, and Marty is definitely an expert. So, you know, you can sign up to the Vadaveda newsletter on the website, vadaveda.com.au, for in-depth knowledge and when I travel the world and consult people, um, you know, when we release special offers, online courses, and Instagram is where I post the most knowledge, Vital Veda, and we're going to have some awesome online 
courses coming up soon, so stay tuned via the newsletter. If you want to have an online consultation with me, you can contact me via the Radoveda contact form on the website. There, I provide you with an in-depth plan on how you can become self-sufficient in your health. We give you herbal remedies, lifestyle, diet, and I want to make you self-sufficient and, and really getting to the root of your health and enlivening the health within you. It's not so much about removing the disease, it's about enlivening the health and the disease will naturally fall. And of course, we remove imbalances, symptoms, things like that. We help remove, but essentially, it's for you to take control of your health and be in the flow and reduce the suffering and promote the bliss and vitality. So, without further ado, Dr. Marty McCary. Dr. Marty McCary, I am so honored to have you here. And although you are an absolute expert in public health and you have a lot to say about the current pandemic of COVID-19, we're going to take it a step back, a few step backs, and go to still a very current issue, um, but perhaps a more chronic and definitely a more pressing issue than this little germ that's going around. This present issue is the crisis of medical appropriateness. So please give our viewers what is medical appropriateness and what is the crisis we are facing? You know, as... As the medical field has increased in complexity, what it has not increased in is coordination of that complex care. So there are many more stations of care and many more hyper-specializations. I mean, we have doctors now who specialize in parts of the body I've never heard of. I mean, I met an ophthalmologist and I asked him what part of the eye he specializes in, assuming that he's a subspecialist. And he said the choroid. I don't even know what that is. Okay. I'm a surgeon myself. Now I do abdominal surgery. I don't even know what that is. Okay. I don't know if I skipped medical school on that day when they taught the choroid, but that's how sophisticated our system has become. It is so subspecialized that what's happened is in some areas, driven sometimes by the perverse financial incentives, doctors can get a one hammer approach as we refer to it in the field. And that is, you know, uh, anyone who comes in with a headache gets a MRI of the brain. Anybody who has any question of a heart problem, they do a cardiac cath. And it becomes this sort of entry level one hammer approach, which um, sometimes is appropriate, but other times is not. And right now, we have two problems in medicine. One is too much medical care, and the other is too little care. But by far, the bigger problem is too much medical care. And if you had to quantify this, according to doctors on the front lines of medicine, in a survey that we conducted of over 2,100 doctors, asking them, what percent of medical care, in your opinion, is unnecessary the average answer was 21%. And they broke it down. Medications, uh, diagnostic tests, even procedures, 11% of procedures, they said. So when you have any industry with one in five people working on the front lines telling you that the services are unnecessary, that's a wake-up call. And I think it's something that we need to remove from our doctor's lounges conversations. and start having an honest conversation about it within the profession and with the public so they can become educated. And that's why I write the books. That's why I wrote Unaccountable. That's why I wrote The Price We Pay. We have the most medicalized generation in human history. 
we have we are living in an era of the medicalization of ordinary life. At the same time, we have the most obese, the most hospitalized, the most medicated, the most proceduralized, the most diagnosed generation in the history of the world, the most disabled generation in the history of the world. So this has been a problem that has been slowly growing, and it just at, at a certain point needs to uh, uh, beg the question, how did we get here and how do we get out of it? And that was probably the most exciting part about writing The Price We Pay is identifying all the disruptors that are doing cool new stuff now to redefine health. Yeah, and I'm excited to get into those and see how, how they're going since the book. Because when did you release the book? The book came out about six months ago. Okay, good. I'm excited to see the progress. So specialists get so specific within medicine and you know, somewhat seems like a reductionist approach and not having greater knowledge of the holistic, you know, physiology and the realm of it all, then perhaps, you know, they're not, that's why they're going down the route of inappropriate medical interventions because they're not aware of other options and perhaps they just want to, you know, they're just standard kind of their way is, is the only thing they're familiar with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have good people, working in a bad system. And there's a culture to the system, just like in the military, there's a culture there, okay? And in a meatpacking plant, there's a culture there. And in, uh, in corporate um, offices, in uh, banking uh, finance offices, there's a certain culture there. People are attracted to different fields for a reason. And in general, we attract the best people into healthcare, right? The sort of person that wants to be a nurse is unique from their peers, right? The sort of person that says, you know, I could do any, uh, I could go to any type of graduate school, but I'm going to go to medical school. It's because they want to help people. Generally speaking, we attract incredible talent that's creative and altruistic. But what happens is we start this in, this process of memorized regurgitation, memorized regurgitation, memorize the steps of the Krebs cycle 10 different times in that educational process and regurgitate the molecules back out. And guess what happens? In the end, we have a certain culture that rewards individualism, memorization, uh, hoarding of knowledge. We have a culture that celebrates certain individuals for doing the most of certain procedures or seeing the most patients. And so we develop these biases, right? One is an individualism bias. Another is a competitiveness bias. Um, and that comes at an expense when, the, when there's a competitiveness bias in the field. That means there's less teamwork. And guess what? Maybe we need to think more about self-awareness and communication skills and teamwork and how to run a meeting, and how to talk to a colleague, and how to know our limits. The, this is the movement right now to revolutionize medicine. It's a movement that says, maybe this patient can be better treated with ice and physical therapy for back pain, rather than just surgery and opioids as the options. Right? Maybe we can manage diabetes with food as medicine. Maybe we can manage depression by creating communities for seniors. And this is the new exciting movement to turn medicine upside down. And that's what I think is the, is the bright spot right now. 
It seems like that needs to be implemented into both the schools as well as the systems into the hospitals and, and all this. So how, how, how much of both of those, you know, it seems perhaps the school is more important or needs more attentiveness? The problem with the schools, um, Dylan, honestly, is the exams, because the exams come from central offices. A small group of board members determines what goes on the exams that all medical students take. And, you know, it's even true worldwide because many schools teach so that their graduates can take the USMLE exams. Uh, many graduates of medical school around the world want their students to be able to have the ability to pass the USMLE exams. And so when those exams are testing nonsense, and I'm, I'm, I'm overstating it here for effect, but when they're teaching, you know, regurgitation as, as the skill set, guess what? We get regurgitation robots that we produce. And so you can say, okay, we're going to have a class on how to break bad news. Okay, we can talk about that. But guess what? The students are smart, and they're not going to come to a class on how to break bad news when they have a, an exam where they're graded relative to their peers um, on a curve with scores that matter for their future, and you're teaching something that they can basically uh, figure out down the road or kick the can and learn later, or and it's not really testable, right? You can't really test with um, for, for a lot of these things like self-awareness, right? You, you can, it's just far more involved, and, and the field has not matured to that point. So as long as we have these archaic exams where we ask our brightest and most creative altruistic young people in the world to you know write with stone tablets memorize and regurgitate steps that now you can look up using in the internet guess what hey guess what USMLE guess what um, medical board examiners there's something called the internet now and you can look up a lot of this stuff you don't have to memorize things for non-emergent situations. Sure, for trauma, if somebody's going to run a trauma or emergency care, there's stuff you got to memorize. But to just know the intermediate molecules of the urea cycle for no good reason, and you have to memorize it day in and day out, it's not an effective way to screen for great human beings to be caregivers. Is there any progress in you know in this and and changing the education system? Well, I've, I've talked to really some. Required? Yeah, there's some. I mean, I talked to some medical school deans who will totally agree with this, right? And say, yeah, you know, it's this central board. It's the board examiners that really define what we can teach in our medical school. Because let's be honest, if you stray from that exam curriculum, the exam-based curriculum, and then your students start having trouble passing the exam, um, your medical school is going to be in trouble, right? Students aren't going to want to go there. Uh, they won't get residency positions. People are going to be frustrated. Um, so the deans want to change the medical education. And they complain to me about the national board. Um, I tell them, why complain to me? Complain to them. And I've, I'm told that the head of the board now says, look, I get it, but I don't know how we do this. Well, do we do it slowly or do we do it quickly? 
Of course, my answer is let's do it quickly. Let's do it surgically, right? I'm a surgeon. Let's get it done. But I think there's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of bureaucracy. I'm hoping that this will be driven by everyday patients, by people out there who want to see a more holistic, comprehensive, compassionate clinician. They want to see somebody who gets it when it comes to knowing their limits, the the benefits of sleep on health, and how we use food to improve health. And a doctor who talks about inflammation, not just medications. And the thing with that is, of course, you know, going down these inappropriate medical interventions, not the ideal thing for the physiology, and, and they should really be a last resort, and there's so many alternative things which are safer and, and going to have less of a negative impact and side effect, whether it's a medication or a surgery. One example is, is the opioid crisis, right? How, is that crisis still prevalent? I mean, here's <laughs> so it doesn't appear like it's getting less. Yeah, the opioid crisis is interesting, right? Because opioids are not not that new, and they op- the opioid crisis existed in the form of heroin for decades. But society basically relegated this as a compartmentalized problem among the poor, the uh, people who live on the street, and those who are... Um, different from them. So a lot of the elite, if you will, of society relegated this problem as this is just a drug problem that we can't fix. Then what happened was the same molecule, the same opioid molecule in the form of pills that were loosely prescribed and overprescribed, started taking more and more lives among those who looked like us. Right? These were wealthy suburban communities where all of a sudden people were found dead or kids were addicted at a young age. And when you traced things back, it turns out that frequently they had a tooth extraction at age seven where they had a minor procedure, a deviated septum for a nosebleed at age 12, or they had a gallbladder surgery at age 20. And what happened was when we overprescribed medications for many reasons. One was with good intentions and bad science. Another was ignoring the real science. Another was the journals were propagating this by um, only publishing an article suggesting that they're not addictive in the top medical journal, the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, with no apology, by the way. Um, that was the only piece that existed in the top journals for a long time. And so it became dogma that they're not addictive and don't let people suffer in pain. And then the industry was driving it and there were some other factors. So for many reasons, we as physicians overprescribed opioids. I overprescribed opioids for a decade. I feel terrible about it. For more than that, during residency, I was told, give everybody 50. And, you know, for major surgery, like a chest operation, give them 100. And people would come back asking for refills, and I'd be like, isn't that funny? They want more. You know, that should be enough. But, you know, they tell me it's not addictive, and there's no real vehicle to get them good pain management. And so I feel terrible. I overprescribed opioids along with every surgeon that I've ever trained with. And um, we look back on the problem, and 
This is one example of medical error. And so when people challenged our studies saying, you know, we had a study uh, a few years ago that said medical error, if it were a disease, would rank as the third leading cause of death in the United States. Well, oh, I didn't realize that was your, your study because <laughs> that's a well-established fact that I hear a lot. Well, that was um, a study that I published along with Michael Daniel from Johns mm. Hopkins. And you can imagine the blowback because there's no perfect study of how you measure medical error. Neither is there, by the way, for heart disease or cancer, which are the number one and two causes. No one on earth knew what the number three cause of death was before we wrote this study. And so we got some of the medical community and the public started to challenge us. Actually, they did a survey and one third of physicians said they did not believe the results and some were very violent in their disbelief. So um, a year later, after that study, after we told people, look, we're just saying it's a major problem, whether it's three or four, it's a major problem, and we need to think of it as a public health problem. Because our list of most common causes of death in the country informs how we fund research and how we uh, inform public health campaigns. So let's recognize that this has a ma massive toll. So um, we had some heated debates. I did, I did not enjoy those debates. I feel like they were a distraction from the real issue, was, which was whether or not it's three, four, or nine. It's a major problem. Let's fix it. We had those debates. And then a year after the study came out, a, a, a formal report came out showing that opioids, prescription opioids, which, as you know, are one form of medical error, overprescribing, was the number one cause of death in the United States in people under age 50. We did not even account for opioids in our estimates. So it is a major problem, right? And this is, again, the medicalization of ordinary life. Whatever happened to non-opioid alternatives to pain management? They've been around, some of them, for centuries. Cold therapy, heat therapy, massage, distraction. Um, there's a number of mechanisms by which people can manage pain. And while it doesn't work for everybody, we know that pain is significantly associated with anxiety, right? Just think of the kid that comes in for their, uh, their shot. You know, a kid comes in for a vaccine. If they're anxious about it and that anxiety builds and builds and builds, guess what? That shot hurts like hell. But if Somebody is talked into it and has a relationship with the person administering the vaccine, and they use a device called Buzzy, B-U-Z-Z-Y, which is a little plastic, looks like a bee, but you apply a little cold pad, like an ice pad to it, and it uses ice, cold therapy, and vibration to numb up the skin where the shot is going to be, and the kid barely feels it or doesn't feel it. Guess what? Now you can give a kid 10 shots and they're, they're gonna, you're going to have a good relationship with them and you avoid that psychological trauma. Do we do that? Rarely. But this is how we can learn from a holistic approach. And at least trying these things before, you know, asking the patient to try it, not going straight to the you know, medication. <laughs> and can you imagine if we, if we asked parents, hey, I can just jab the needle in. It'll probably, you know, every other kid, they, they get traumatized by it. But if you'd like, I can use this device that kind of numbs up the skin with 
with an ice pack and then use this vibration little toy on it and they really will barely feel it. Which one would you like me to do? Imagine if we started including uh, family members and loved ones and patients in the decision making and started to offer the whole gamut of possibilities, right? We'd have a different healthcare system. Exactly. Yeah. Giving the options and possibilities. That's right. And what are what are the numbers at the moment for opioid prescriptions? Well, it was 60,000 uh, deaths a year just in the United States from opio- prescription opioids. We think most of those got those during routine procedures or medical care. There was a big scandal where the FDA the regulatory body that approves medications in the United States granted approval of opioids for chronic pain when there was no evidence to support that it works for chronic pain. And so you started having this sort of uh, arms race of who can advertise and peddle most of these, you know, medications to physician offices among the sales reps. And, um, so it's it's still a problem. It is still a problem. Of course, the media gets distracted. You know, they'll cover COVID-19 and all of a sudden it's as if the opioid problem dissolved, but it's very real and very much still there. We have had a project out of Johns Hopkins to show doctors how much how many opioids they're prescribing after routine operations relative to their peers. And we've also set some guidelines. It's it's all available. Uh, procedure specific guidelines on opioids both for patients and for doctors, and that's available at solvethecrisis.org. This is also one of the factors, I think, is is in the patient as well. They've got into this kind of pill-popping culture, and this materialistic kind of quick-fix you know, mentality and impatient. <laughs> and I think you know the doctors can really play a good role in this in just educating them and, and, and yeah, also providing that there are other options and ways to approach it. And I think another manifestation, which I'd like to just briefly touch on, of the you know appropriate uh, the crisis of medical appropriateness is, you know, the, the how about antibiotic prescriptions and and people developing you know antimicrobial resistance? That's a, that's a crisis, right? Yeah, they're they're big, both big issues. Um, you know, I think the average American right now is on four medications, and the average senior is on like nine. Um, this is a symptom of a broader problem. And that is that we turn to a medication to fix our problems. And we're seeing it with COVID-19, right? COVID-19, there's this sort of desperate search for a medication that's going to solve the problem. And we do need a vaccine and we're getting there and that's important. But look how quickly we just turn to uh, a pill or, or a medication for a problem where we have a therapy that is already 100% effective in killing the virus. It's called soap and water. And you can use distancing to stop the transmission in its tracks, right? Masks, wearing masks. But immediately, you know, the conversation focused on, you know, what medication can we take to rid us of this problem? It's just an interesting cultural approach. What about focus on you know, not increasing your natural immunity, getting sunlight, getting outside, having good diet. I mean, it's uh, crazy that they've, we've heard nothing about this. I mean, sunlight's free. It can be implemented immediately if they're, of course, they're in the climate for it. Oh, you mean for I mean, COVID-19? That, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, our recommendation to stay at home was the wrong recommendation. 
Now, we didn't know that at the time. We just, you know, wanted people to do everything to try to stop this. So we we gave that broad recommendation. But stay at home, that was not the right recommendation. We should have said, stay on your property or just stay six feet from someone or wear a mask if you uh, are concerned around people or uh, get outside to a park or to a beach. Um, you know, we closed parks and beaches and told people to stay at home. That was a mistake. We should have told people, try to be outside, but yet try to maintain social distancing. If you're on your property, you know, wear a mask, st- try to stay six feet away from other people. If you're on a park, try to avoid that six feet distance. Uh, if you want to play it extra safe, wear a mask. That's what we should have been telling people. We now know there's a massive seasonality to the coronavirus. And this recent COVID-19 is turns out similar to the other four known coronaviruses that have circulated year to year, uh, and those are seasonal. So COVID-19 may in fact just be the fifth seasonal coronavirus. You mentioned the elderly are on you know more medications on average. Do we see the elderly are taking adva- being taken advantage of? It seems so in, in my you know experience and in with my grandparents, and they're just on so many medications and. Yeah, it's tragic, really, that um, a part of it is the loss of the family unit, right? Because I can tell you when we have a loved one join a senior and take notes and ask good questions, they are an advocate for that patient. And they're generally getting better care, right? Because they're investigating other options and they're asking good questions and they're helping be, become a partner in that care and helping with the care itself. Uh, you look at Devi Shetty, a cardiac surgeon in India. He's doing elective heart surgery, open heart bypass surgery for the equivalent of 500 US dollars with outcomes that are the equivalent of the Cleveland Clinic for uncomplicated heart surgery. He's a surgeon I uh, got to know and profiled in my book, The Price We Pay. I asked him, how are you doing open heart surgery for the equivalent of 500 US dollars with great outcomes? You know what he said? He said, Marty, sometimes the wounds heal better with sunlight and fresh air than they do with gauze and air conditioning. And when you nest a patient with their family and make them a partner, they can deliver some of the best bedside care out there. And so, you know, instead of dropping off our seniors in a long-term care facility or at the hospital so the doctor can fix their medical problems, when people are connected with their loved ones and their partners in the medical care team, we see much better outcomes. A key relationship, I think a key point is to, to increase this trust between the, the patient and the doctor because in, even in Ayurvedic medicine, in the traditional system, you know, the, the most important quality of a patient is to be able to surrender, you know, surrender to the doctor and and, and not think much and allow him to do it. And this is still the case. You know, patients will still tell the doctor things they wouldn't tell their spouse. And, but I think there is a, there's definitely some trust being lost. And um, this is very important because really, as you said, even with the people receiving the procedures, if you want less pain, be less anxious. You know, we need to engage in medical intervention with trust with the physician and uh, the ability to completely surrender. And I guess a cause for this is the medical inappropriateness, which is they've been kind of scarred from in the past. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at the um, 
Consumer Reports has a great study that came out a few years ago. It came out in uh, August 3rd, 2017. Now, probably the problem's worse now than it was then, but they showed how we prescribed, we as doctors in the United States prescribed 2.4 billion prescriptions 10 years ago. And most recently, 2016, uh, 10 years later, it hit 4.4 billion, almost doubled. Okay, did disease double over 10 years? No. We have a crisis of appropriateness. And you look at the number of people who take a prescription medication um, in the United States, uh, 53%. 75% also take at least one over-the-counter medication uh, regularly. Um, Instead of just pushing pills, and you look at the top medications prescribed, they are, I'm going to call them lifestyle medications. Why? Because they address things that could otherwise be fixed with a change in lifestyle. Another thing you you talk about in your book, which was absolutely mind-blowing in terms of the numbers and and the prevalence of it, is the price gouging, okay? Price Hmm. gouging on medical services. And we saw it, we've seen it in COVID, I think, a bit with the supermarkets, Doing uh, price gouging their their products, things like cooking oils and some things. Um, so, but anyway, in medicine, <laughs> yeah, the difference between the grocery stores and medical price gouging is the medical price gouging is not a supply demand uh, problem. It is a take advantage of you when you're vulnerable problem sometimes, right? So people had trust us as physicians. I love being a doctor. My dad was a doctor. My grandfather was a clinical pharmacist um, on one side of the family. On the other side, he was a primary care doctor. It's an incredible heritage to be a part of. For somebody to to meet you for the first time and then trust you to tell you things they've never told their spouse just because you're the doctor or trust you to put a knife to their skin within minutes of meeting you just because they are at the hospital and you're the doctor It's an enormous privilege, and it's the best job in the world. But right now, the great doctor-patient relationship is being threatened by a new business model that has been adopted by some. Many many times it's unbeknownst to the doctor, a business model of price gouging, sending a bill as high as you could possibly price it hoping that an insurance company might bite or some out-of-network cash-paying person will, might just pay that price. And um, using this archaic, crazy system that we have inherited in American healthcare, and that is inflating bills for the purposes of offering higher and higher discounts to selective insurance companies year to year. So it's an old game. I call it the game in the book, The Price We Pay, where it's a game where insurance companies say, look, we're playing it. The hospitals are playing it. Let's just admit it. We're all playing this game where the hospitals jack up the prices year to year, and they also with it increase the discounts. And it's a mirage, right? It's a shell game of these high prices that have been designed to be um, discounted for insurance companies. So look, I'll sell you a car if I get to set the price. Now you can say I demand a 50% discount on the car, 
But if I can set that price at $10 million, what's it matter what the discount is? I can just reset that price to make it very profitable, right? And so that is the crazy game in healthcare right now is that there's this insider game among the stakeholders to price and discount services. And then you show a hospital, as I did in, in a recent Market Watch article, uh, Bill from Stanford, uh, for uh, tens of thousands of dollars for a 45-minute breast procedure. And we ask the hospital, why did you charge $60,000 for this? And they, their response, oh, well, no one is expected to pay that amount. That is really set for insurance discounts. Insurance has an, an accepted contract. Well, guess what? I found out in doing the research for the book that a lot of people are expected to pay those bills because if you don't have insurance or you're out of the insurance network or some out-of-network doctor started taking care of you at an in-network hospital and hits you with a surprise bill, a lot of people are expected to pay those full sticker price bills. And it's not fair to them, and it violates the sacred doctor-patient relationship. That's been the journey of this book. Ever since we uncovered this problem of hospitals even suing patients and engaging in predatory billing, we've seen hospitals around the country surrender their suing patients' practice and stop suing patients. And we appeal to them, reminding them why we went into medicine and good stuff is happening around the country right now. Fantastic. I mean, that's absurd when I read that. And they're suing the, the patients who are you know, on the minimum wage. I mean, do they really need that small amount of money? Walmart. Why, why were they doing it in the first place? Yeah, Walmart employees were the most common workers in the United States to be sued by a hospital for an unpaid medical bill. These are not people who live like me, right? These are, these are not wealthy people. These are people, hardworking folks who pay taxes, who pay for their health insurance, they're insured, and they're getting clobbered by this uh, very unfair switch and bait right now. So um, I've offered to defend any patient that's been sued by a hospital for an unpaid medical bill. If that price was not disclosed to them ahead of time and there was no agreement about that bill, uh, about that price before the service, and they get sued to have their wages garnished, uh, I have offered to defend them in court for free, pro bono, and I do that. I go around the country, and we win 100% of the time. These Some of these hospitals should be ashamed of what they're doing. And you were saying whenever they hear that Dr. Marty McCary is supporting the, the person, they just close the case, right? <laughs> they, they cancel the case when they see my name listed as an expert. Uh, but we've got a little yeah. team doing it now. It's uh, restoringmedicine.org. It's our little effort. And we're issuing reports. We have a new report on Texas hospitals that sue patients that we uh, just published. And so a lot, of, uh, a lot of good stuff is happening. You know, when COVID came around, hospitals said, hey, we're losing a lot of money. And so the government issued billions of dollars, over $175 billion to go straight to hospitals. And I jumped in and said, hey, wait a minute. Some hospitals really need that money, but other hospitals don't need the money. They're sitting on billions of dollars of endowments and cash reserves. Some of them are suing patients for unpaid bills and violating their tax-exempt status, the criteria. 
And let's make sure the money goes to the hospitals that really need it, the rural hospitals, the hospitals serving low-income communities, the hospitals that forgive bills when patients simply can't afford to pay them. Let's make sure we support those American hospitals, not the ones sitting on $25 billion endowments, price gouging, and have investment arms that are bigger than some hedge funds because they have so much money. And so we've been fighting this and, and trying to get surprise billing reform tied to some of the money that's going to hospitals. And a big problem is, and I see it in, in Australia with people, the, the common comment from the patient who's, who gets this bill is, oh, it's okay, my insurance company pays it. I have pri- <laughs> These are for the ones who do have private health insurance. They think, they think it's fine. Yeah, until, is it fine? until they yeah. see their insurance premium next year, right? Because insurance companies, it's an actuarial science. They're just paying out claims based on premium revenue. So uh, when, you, when people say, oh, my insurance company paid or Medicare paid or the government paid for this bill, guess what? Change the lexicon. You paid through your insurance premiums for that bill or the government paid through your tax dollars. Right. So it's a whole different. The lexicon is so important when it comes to healthcare. I was just saying it really shows how important it is for us to, you know, be proponents of taking action and not just being a bypasser and letting the system go like because you think it's not you're not a big influence, but you are. Absolutely. It starts with you. Absolutely. And, and that's why I wrote the book, The Price We Pay. It's a recruitment book to say, hey, I'll explain the business of medicine, business 101 and make it exciting so anyone can understand it. You will be educated on the business of medicine. Now we need you to get involved. Healthcare mm. is the number one issue in the United States. The polls all show it. The presidential election polls are asking people, what is the number one issue going into the election? It was the, the case for the last presidential election, the midterm um, congressional election, the... Um, Every election, the number one issue is healthcare. Why? Because businesses and individuals are getting crushed right now with their healthcare costs. It's the reason why a lot of businesses are not competitive. It's, a re- it's the reason why we shipped out manufacturing to China and India. And um, you know we're dependent on those countries for PPE and for medications during COVID-19. It's because manufacturing cannot compete because of the high cost of healthcare, at least it's the major driver. So we need people to get involved. Good stuff is happening. Well, we'll go into that a bit and just the solution and, and the optimism all around it. But um, and, and the wonderful things that have been going, really congratulating to you because you've been a huge proponent in, you know, initiating these uh, movements and organizations. But just back, just one more thing with the price gouging, I just want you to explain because it's just mind-blowing the statistics in the situations with the ambulances and the air ambulances that's a prime example of price gouging yeah yeah it's um, crazy turns out that if any emt or first responder or doctor or nurse says hey i think we might need a transport here and they call this hotline number that the air ambulance companies many times private equity owned air ambulance companies put out and distribute then all of a sudden there's a helicopter in a field next to you know, the accident scene, or there's a helicopter on the roof of the hospital ready to do the transport. No discussion of pricing, even when it's non-emergent. Okay, If it's a true emergency, we should not be talking pricing. We need to take care of the patient and just focus on that. But 80% of air transport 
is non-emergent. And when you start slapping people with bills for $100,000, $200,000 for a 30-minute transport by air, it begs the question, why did we not use a ground ambulance? And the answer is that the private equity companies have figured out a business model that's very profitable. Just send the helicopters, just scoop the patient into the helicopter and do the transport, and then let's slap them with a surprise bill, and let's just see what sucker pays for it, right? Let's just see if if the insurance company or the employer who sponsors healthcare will just pay for the the full bill, the full hundred thousand dollars, or even if they pay for half, the true cost might be four thousand or six thousand dollars. That's what Medicare might pay for the same service. But let's just see if the they'll pay fifty percent of the hundred thousand dollar bill. And so you put out enough crazy bills like that, and enough suckers bite. All of a sudden, you've got yourself a very profitable business. And once again, taking advantage of people at a time when they're vulnerable feeding on the lack of transparency. So if anyone needs a transport anywhere, I tell them to call the air transport brokers and they will put it out to bid. And oftentimes those bids are 10% of what people would, would otherwise get huh. after the Jeez. I guess one worry that people would have are those quick by the time those brokers can sort out a transport system. Oh yeah, they do it quickly. They do it very quickly. Sentinel Air is my favorite in the United States. There's a bunch of them. Um, you know, um, a friend of mine got very sick in Australia. He was there uh, visiting. He was in the ICU. The doctors there took incredible care of him. He did well, and then it was ready for him. He was ready to be transported. So uh, he, he needed some assistance. He couldn't just fly commercial. And, the, of course, you know, whatever air ambulance company scrambled a plane um, ha, you know, told them, oh yeah, well, you know, we're happy to pick you up. They're very friendly, very user, you know, very quick to respond. Kind of want to get to you quickly before you talk to any other options. Uh, just pick you up, put you in the plane, transported him back to the United States, sent him a bill for $250,000. He then asks me, hey, we can't afford this. We're, you know, some people are trying to raise money to support him. Ironically, these GoFundMe, you know, campaigns and churches and friends. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That bill should have been about $40,000. Okay. I can tell you the reference base price for that service. For $250,000, you could have your own Lear jet fly you to Beijing, China and back 10 times. Okay. You got price gouged. And so finally, I found an attorney who was able to knock that price down. But this is the game that people need to be aware of. And it sort of represents the worst of pricing in healthcare today. Yeah. And and an example that it's happening is is that people can be negotiating this. I mean, my, my friend recently went to the hospital for a for a scan or cycle. I can't remember what it was, it was some scan and and they basically just said, Oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the she goes, she goes to pay this. Don't worry about it. The nurse said. So it's clearly there's a lot of fluidity going around and there's no set procedures and systems. <laughs> you know, I um I specialize in pancreatic surgery. There's an operation that I that I've done a lot of called the Whipple. I can tell you 500 facts about the Whipple operation except for one fact, the price of it. And it's just not been a <laughs> part of our training, right? 
And so, again, we've got good people working in a bad system. Let, the fundamental problem in healthcare is we have non-competitive markets. If we can create some price transparency, we can move towards competitive markets. I'm working with a group now called Sesame, sesamecare.com. And it is intended to be an online marketplace so that a place that offers a CAT scan or an MRI can post it with the price. A doctor can offer a consultation with a fixed price. They can set any price they want, and they should be able to. They want to charge double? Fine, go ahead. Let the market work, and let's stop trying to look at a non-competitive market and create dumb rules within that market, and instead say, can we convert this to a competitive marketplace so it's efficient? Imagine if airlines did not charge, did not list a price. And instead, they simply charged you after a flight, like routine commercial flights. You go to fly to Sydney, fly to Los Angeles, you name it. On the travel sites, imagine there was no price and it had an asterisk and it said, American Airlines or Qantas will bill you after the flight. There's no price. Guess what? They'd be price gouging people all over the place. They'd be charging you $500 $500 for a surprise Coca-Cola that you decide to consume, right? So but the fundamental problem is we have non-competitive markets. That can be transformed overnight through some degree of price transparency. That affects 60% of medical care, which is the shoppable part. It doesn't help the emergent part, but it goes a long way. And before we get into some of those solutions, is also can you talk about the, I mean, the doctors are nudging the patients and Again, is this the doctor or the system? Uh, is it you in your book? I can't remember if it's you or my friend who's a, who's a birthing educator who talks about Dr. Dinner. Yeah, I, I, I wrote about <laughs> is that him, you? Yeah, yeah. The, about the doctor who, you know, wants to be home for dinner. So he'll just implement a C-section <laughs> instead of going into the natural labor. And, and any woman you say like, oh, the C-section might be safer. That's a nudge, right? They're going to straight away. Oh yes, anything to do to protect my baby. Right. It's a it's a universal nudge anywhere in the world. If you tell a woman in labor, you know, a, a C section would might be safer for the baby, guess what? The woman's gonna say, do the C section. And so we learn these powerful nudges. And um, you know, they're in every field. Um orthopedics, if they say, you know, you've got bone on bone in your joint, it's time to replace the joint. They'll say, well, gosh, if it's bone on bone, then yeah, it makes sense. Well, it turns out what? Bone bone normally is on bone with some degree of cartilage, and it's a spectrum, right? It's not a necessarily cut and dry thing. So we've learned these nudge terms. Now, remember, most doctors do the right thing or always try to. We don't want to create suspicion and hysteria, but it's well known. Ask any physician that you know. Do you know of another physician who should not be practicing because what they do is bad for patients, I guarantee you they will say yes. And they might tell you, yeah, I know a doctor that does a C-section on 90% of all women in labor. And that was Dr. Dinner. That was the story of Dr. Dinner is everyone knew about this guy and still does, by the way. I had to anonymize him for legal reasons. But he will come out of clinic uh, just after lunch and go over to the hospital and any woman in labor that he's in charge of, he will tell them, you know, a C-section might be safer for the baby. 
and they will agree, and then he will do the C-section and be home in time for dinner, hence his name, Dr. Dinner. And so people need to know that doctors have a specific C-section rate, specific to their practice. You should ask about that. Now, if they're doing all high-risk pregnancies, it might be a little higher. But remember, sometimes high-risk babies do better with vaginal delivery. Vaginal delivery in general is better for the baby. It squeezes the lungs so they expunge the, uh, the, the fluid uh, better. It colonizes their GI tract with, uh, with the bacteria of the vaginal canal, which is important in establishing what the composition of their microbiome will be for life. It uh, reduces the amount of scarring and uh, distortion from uh, this uh, associated with C-sections. It's better for the baby. C-section uh, vaginal deliveries are better for the baby in general. Now, the most important thing is the baby's health and safety. So it's a judgment call. But when you have such amount of, uh, such a degree of gray area and an abuse by some fraction of physicians, um, people need to be aware. And, and they need to, uh, you know, inquire. Do you want to go, do you want to have your baby delivered by a doctor who has a 45% C-section rate or a doctor who has a 19% C-section rate when both have similar outcomes? Is that data easily available? Like if we say to the doctor, what is your rate? Only in California. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that needs to be made available. It should it should be pretty easy, right? If they if they're lodging every birth they give, the hospital should be able to have that on hand. I agree. I mean, I mean, this is where we need people to get engaged in the system. These are basic things, right? Every time you ask for a price, guess what? That changes the market. Every time you ask what is your C section rate or what's your hospital C section rate, it influences the market. Just like when people started to ask, is this food organic? Is the fish wild caught? Uh, you know, is does is the food have GMO? So people just need to keep asking, and that's the exciting revolution that's happening right now. So you know, someone at Google, one of the executives, read my book and said, "Oh, we like the book, The Price We Pay. Why don't you come talk to us?" I went out to Google, and they said, "Well, what can we do?" I said, "Look, you guys, I have the search engine that governs the entire internet. When somebody types in the name of a hospital," Don't just put the name of the hospital and the address and the phone number. Put the name of the hospital, the address, the phone number, and their average C-section rate, and their average price markup, and their average leapfrog quality score, and their average performance on the billing quality measures that we published in JAMA in our piece on billing quality as medical quality. That would create public accountability and foster a healthy free market. That's what we need this healthy competition through transparency. And, and, you know, there's some websites which you've been involved in creating and things that we, they can see the uh, procedures and as well as things like GoodRx where you can check the prices of medications and what they actually should be. Yeah, we'll put all those in the show notes, all the various resources. And you mentioned the Sesame Care. That seems uh, similar to, is it MD Save is the one which has different procedure prices? Yeah, both similar. MD Save and SesameCare.com, both trying to disrupt the marketplace. And uh, they may end up being the, the new Expedia and Kayak of the next uh, era. So I, I hope people use them. And it does move markets when people do. 
And also for doctors and hospitals, list your services on there. I, I know with Sesame Care, is, it's free to list your services and set your own price. And this helps create honesty in healthcare. You know, what, you, what you've done is really radical. It's, it's really exposing the system and stirring it up. How's the feedback being? I know you've got a lot of, yeah, both positive and have you got any also negative uh, any threats kind of thing? <laughs> uh, my, my, my buddy Z-Dog MD, who's a you know, well-known podcaster and um, uh, internet sensation, he constantly says, you know, you're going to get murdered. And I, I tell him, if, <laughs> if I do, all my passwords are Z-Dog number one. <laughs> but no, I, I, you know, I, the silence scares me a little bit because I tend to only hear the positive feedback. And then among hospital executives and some other big stakeholder executives, they whisper their feedback to me. You know, they say things like, you know, everything you're writing about is true. I see it all the time. I can't say this publicly, but keep doing what you're doing. Keep writing and talking about these issues. Oh, hopefully they can remove that barrier and, and take action on themselves. All right. And um, and just before we finish to touch on COVID, because, of course, you're very much involved in public health. Do you think, because I guess with COVID, people non-essential procedures are being restricted and perhaps that non-emergent care has. So potentially this could be having an influence for the future on inappropriate medical care. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're probably learning about things that we were doing that we didn't need to be doing, like having follow-up visits in person sometimes when they were not necessary, that no physical exam was required. We're, we're seeing a, a massive appropriate growth of telehealth. And I know Sesame Care is working on that as well. Um, you know, every industry is probably learning what was, what was unnecessary in their industry, but was previously in a blind spot. Um, and so COVID has had this silver lining of helping us redesign certain processes. And in healthcare, that's true as well. One of the silver linings of COVID-19 and the shutdown has been a reduction in what we call low value care. Um, at the same time, the shutdown is its own issue because I was one of those people calling for a closure or postponement of all non-essential activities. Going into this thing, we did not know exactly what we were dealing with. The data was not very good. We saw rationing of care in Italy and China, and that absolutely could have happened in the United States and in Australia. And um, we didn't know what we were dealing with. It was scary. New York came on the brink of rationing, and we asked people to take dramatic uh, moves and to stop doing non-essential activities. So it turns out that we've learned a lot since then, and our strategy needs to evolve. I mean, I was one of those people calling for the shutdown of non-essential activities, but now we've got to reopen, and we've got to do it carefully, and we've got to do it in the right way, and we've got to be hyper-vigilant about the second wave, and we've got to adopt a new normal so that when uh, we do need to switch on the precautions again, say in the second wave or maybe with another infection in years down into the future, we know how to do it. We know the value of masks. We've trained people. We've adopted social distancing. We've redesigned our business processes and we've uh, developed patterns where restaurants can convert to the carry out and delivery business instantly. So we don't have quite the toll on society that we've seen with this sort of uh, blind lockdown that we did. 
Okay. Thanks, Marty. Um, you've just, just you've mentioned masks quite a bit and there's a lot of people talking about they can cause worse issues due to the fact of, you know, restricting oxygen and increased CO2. Of course, I mean, most, most infections are airborne, I would say, rather than touch, right? So what is your view on that? Yeah, wear them loosely. Uh, if the mask bothers you or you're not getting good oxygen exchange, then, you know, wear it a little loosely. I, you know, I'm a, kind of amused at watching the world now try wearing masks because I've been wearing a mask most of my adult life as a surgeon. And the first time, you know, it bothers you and you want to rip it off. And the second time it itches you. And the third time you kind of forget that it's there. And so uh, getting people to adopt uh, a new way of living temporarily, right? This is not permanent. This is while we've seen hundreds of thousands of people die. We've asked people to adopt this new routine. And we're learning more and more about the value of masks. We're learning people acquire the infection more from direct transmission of airborne droplets than from touching common surfaces, at least in the uh, uh, non-cold season time. So, you know, I called a surgeon in China, a uh, physician in China, happens to be a surgeon, but I asked him, how has China been able to manage this COVID-19 infection in a country of over 1.1 billion? Think about it, Wuhan and, and even Harbin, the other province that got hit hard, you know, these are communities of 11 million people. And China is 1.1 billion. How did they not contain it, but how did they manage this infection to prevent this what happened in Wuhan happening in a country of 1.1 billion. And you know what his answer was? Because I was perplexed at this. How did they, they, obviously it was not contained. How did they manage COVID-19 in the entire larger population of over a billion people after the outbreak in Wuhan and Harbin? He said, masks. I said, really? He said, yeah, everyone's wearing masks. Every single person outdoors wears a mask. I mean, unless you live on a farm and by yourself, I mean, people are wearing a mask. And he said, you know, they're powerful. They reduce that uh, droplet transmission. And so our hope is that we can have a more targeted surgical strategy when it comes to infections. Instead of doing these radical shutdowns, maybe we can say, okay, you know what? 42% of U.S. deaths have been in nursing homes. Let's super fortify and protect our seniors in long-term care facilities. Let's 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 allow schools to proceed, but let's not have high-risk teachers show up at school until the background level of the viral burden is diminished. Um, so there are certain things we can do wisely at this point, and so I think we do need to learn from the data. Unfortunately, we live in a society of, you know, shouting and opinions. And that's honestly what got us into some of the problem with COVID-19 with our strategies. People dug into their opinions, right? We heard on TV, everyone's opinion, right? Strat political strategists and elected officials all rendering their opinion. Well, what do they know about virology and public health and epidemiology? You know, why did the, the network news put on all these political figures rendering, you know, their opinions and um, not listen to the real experts. You know, finally, I was able to uh, 
um, convince um, some of the shows to say, hey, you know, here's some experts, put them on, you know, I'll even say some things. And so we finally figured out that uh, this is not something that should be political. It's something that should be scientific and our positions should evolve. You know, if you're pro-mask or anti-mask, if you're pro um, and, you know, having an NBA season or anti, whatever your position is, whatever your view is, and it's good for people to have different views, it needs to evolve. It needs to constantly be informed by the data and change as necessary. We don't do a good job of that as a society. Just look at Twitter, right? It's all shouting. It's all strong opinions by people that have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. And that requires, you know, for the person as an, as an audience or who's reading or researching it to really be critical and, and look at their, you know, sources and references and, and where they're coming from and question with an open mind. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thanks so much, Marty. Thank you. Is, Thank is you. There, so we'll, we'll list all the websites and resources, but I think the fundamental thing is for the, you know, individual to really learn about the system, what's going on. And then, as you said, vote with your dollar and, and, you know, act, act yourself and have a, have a say in this and um, definitely recommend Marty's book, The Price We Pay. Um, is there anything else you want to leave the audience with? Oh, that's terrific. Um, it's, it's been great talking with you, Dylan. Keep up the good work. I know you're promoting good health and recommending that people uh, take a new approach to health and wellness and not just follow the cookie cutter dogma that we've all inherited in modern medicine, but instead to think of creatively about what we can do to improve our overall health and not just our, you know, blood pressure and uh, heart rate and uh, BMI, which is what we measure every time someone comes to the doctor. Uh, health is a lot more than that. So thank you for paying attention to that and, and promoting it. Thank you, Marty. I really appreciate it. And as you said, you know, the influence of the mind on, on anything. You were talking about it in relation to pain and the opioids, but really if we can get those people in. I think, you know, the biggest problem is unhappiness. If everyone can just be more content and more than content, you know, perhaps even really comfortable spiritually and mentally and emotionally, then, you know, you can have a pinched nerve and not have to get cortisol injections and all these things. So. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay, thank you. Great, Dylan. Great talking with you. Now, just give your jaw a little massage because jaw dropping can be a little strenuous on the TMJ bone. No, really, that man is just doing incredible things. I cannot recommend his book, The Price We Pay, enough. So, if you enjoy what you're listening to, please support the show. Subscribe so you don't miss the new shows. We've got awesome stuff coming up. Next fortnight, we have one all about sex and relationships and semen retention and monogamy. Beautiful with the most famous relationship author in the world, Dr. John Gray. I'm very excited to share that with you. That's next fortnight. So, subscribe so you don't miss it. And if you support the show, that would be much appreciated. Just, you know, rate with the stars and leave a review. That helps a lot. Share with your friends you feel to donate, you can go to the Vital Vader podcast page on the Vital Vader website and keep enjoying. I really appreciate you being here. I really, really mean that. And, you know, this podcast show is, is real intimate. It's got a beautiful community um, who really stick with, you know, stick with the things they learn and they take action on the knowledge that they learn. That's what I really value. It's not about the numbers. 
of how many audience listeners you have. And if you want to be more involved with that community, join the Vital Vader community on Facebook. It's a beautiful Facebook group where people share, you know, questions they have, share knowledge that they've learned. And, you know, I'm not the only one who answers it. There's other experts that answer it and they may even know more than me in that area. In most cases they do. So it's a beautiful community to connect with like-minded and share knowledge and, and questions. So join that. And if you support the show, you know, you are supporting yourself because when you kind of give, you get something back. It's the laws of nature. And it's a beautiful thing to just take action. And although you think, yeah, other people will do it, I'll just leave it. I'm enjoying this show. I'm getting knowledge. It's good for the world. But do that little extra of, of giving and take the energy and the time to go leave a review. Okay, much love and until next time. <laughs>